Book the Seventh, Part Five of Birds of Prey by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: Riding the High Horse. Never, in his brightest dreams, had Valentine Hawkehurst imagined the stream of life so fair and sunny a river as it seemed to him now. Fortune had treated him so scurvily for seven and twenty years of his life, only to relent of a sudden and fling all her choicest gifts into his lap. I must be the prince in the fairy tale who begins life as a revolting animal of the rhinoceros family, and ends by marrying the prettiest princess of Elfendom, he said to himself gaily, as he paced the broad walks of Kensington Gardens, where the bare trees swung their big black branches in the wintry blast and the rooks cawed their loudest at close of the brief day. What, indeed, could this young adventurer demand from benignant fortune above and beyond the blessings she had given him? The favoured suitor of the fairest and brightest woman he had ever looked upon, received by her kindred, admitted to her presence, and only bidden to serve a due apprenticeship before he claimed her as his own forever. What more could he wish? what further boon could he implore from the fates yes there was one more thing one thing for which mr hawkehurst pined while most thankful for his many blessings he wanted a decent excuse for separating himself completely from horatio paget he wanted to shake himself free from all the associations of his previous existence he wanted to pass through the waters of jordan and to emerge purified regenerate leaving his garments on the furthermost side of the river, and, with all other things appertaining to the past, he would fain have rid himself of Captain Paget. "'Be sure your sin will find you out,' mused the young man. "'And having found you, be sure that it will stick to you like a leech, if your sin takes the shape of an unprincipled acquaintance, as it does in my case. I may try my hardest to cut the past, but will Horatio Paget let me alone in the future?' I doubt it. The bent of that man's genius shows itself in his faculty for living upon other people. He knows that I am beginning to earn money regularly, and has begun to borrow of me already. When I can earn more, he will want to borrow more, and although it is very sweet to work for Charlotte Halliday, it would not be by any means agreeable to slave for my friend Paget. Shall I offer him a pound a week? and ask him to retire into the depths of Wales or Cornwall, amend his ways, and live the life of a repentant hermit. I think I could bring myself to sacrifice the weekly sovereign, if there were any hope that Horatio Paget could cease to be. Horatio Paget, on this side the grave. No, I have the misfortune to be intimately acquainted with the gentleman. When he is in the swim, as he calls it, and is earning money on his own account, he will give himself cosy little dinners and four and six penny primrose gloves, and when he's down on his luck, he will come whining to me. This was by no means a pleasant idea to Mr. Hawkehurst. In the old days he had been distinguished by all the Bohemians' recklessness, and even more than the Bohemians' generosity in his dealings with friend or companion. But now all was changed. He was no longer reckless a certain result was demanded from him as the price of charlotte halliday's hand and he set himself to accomplish his allotted task with all due forethought and earnestness of purpose 
he had need even to exercise restraint over himself lest in his eagerness he should do too much and so lay himself prostrate from the ill effects of overwork so anxious was he to push upon the road whose goal was so fair a temple so light seemed that labor of love which was performed for the sake of charlotte he communed with himself very often on the subject of that troublesome question about captain paget how was he to sever his frail skiff from that rackish privateer what excuse could he find for renouncing his share in the omega street lodgings and setting up a new home elsewhere policy might prompt me to keep my worthy friend under my eye he said to himself in order that i may be sure there is no underhand work going on between him and philip sheldon but i can scarcely believe that philip sheldon has any inkling about the haygarthian fortune if he had he would surely not receive me as charlotte's suitor what possible motive could he have for doing so this was a question which mr hawkehurst had frequently put to himself for his confidence in mr sheldon was not of that kind which asks no questions even while most anxious to believe in that gentleman's honesty of purpose he was troubled by occasional twinges of unbelief during the period which had elapsed since his return from yorkshire he had been able to discover nothing of any sinister import from the proceedings of captain paget that gentleman appeared to be still engaged upon the promoting business although by no means so profitably as heretofore he went into the city every day and came home in the evening toil-worn and out of spirits he talked freely of his occupation how he had done much or done nothing during the day and valentine was at a loss to perceive any further ground for the suspicion that had arisen in his mind after the meeting at ullerton station and the shuffling of the sanctimonious googe with regard to mrs rebecca haygarth's letters mr hawkehurst therefore determined upon boldly cutting the knot that tied him to the familiar companion of his wanderings i'm tired of watching and suspecting he said to himself if my dear love has a right to this fortune it will surely come to her or if it should never come we can live happily without it indeed for my own part i am inclined to believe that i should be prouder and happier as the husband of a dowerless wife than as a prince consort to the heiress of the haygarths we have built up such a dear cheery unpretentious home for ourselves in our talk of the future that i doubt if we could share to change it for the stateliest mansion in kensington palace gardens or belgrave square my darling could not be my housekeeper and make lemon cheesecakes in her own pretty little kitchen if we lived in belgrave square and how could she stand at one of those great birmingham ironwork gates in the palace gardens to watch me right away to my work to a man as deeply in love as mr hawkehurst the sordid dross which other people prize so highly is apt to become daily more indifferent a kind of color-blindness comes over the vision of the true lover and the glittering yellow ore seems only so much vulgar earth to mean a thing to be regarded by any but the mean of soul thus it was that mr hawkehurst relaxed his suspicion of captain paget and neglected his patron and ally of gray's inn much to the annoyance of that gentleman who tormented the young man with little notes demanding interviews these interviews had of late been far from agreeable to either of the allies george sheldon urged the necessity of an immediate marriage 
Valentine declined to act in an underhand manner, after the stockbroker's unexpected generosity. "'Generosity!' echoed George Sheldon, when Valentine had given him this point-blank refusal at the close of a stormy argument. "'Generosity! My brother Phil's generosity! Egad! That is about the best thing I've heard for the last ten years. If I please, Mr. Valentine Hawkehurst, I could tell you something about my brother which would enable you to estimate his generosity at its true value. But I don't, please, and if you choose to run counter to me and my interests, you must pay the price of your folly. You may think yourself uncommonly lucky if the price isn't a stiff one. I'm prepared to abide by my decision, answered Valentine. Miss Halliday without a shilling is so dear to me that I don't care to commit a dishonorable action in order to secure my share of the fortune she may claim. I turned over a new leaf on the day when I first knew myself possessed of her affection. I don't want to go back to the old leaves. George Sheldon gave himself an impatient shrug. I have heard of a great many fools, he said, but I never heard of a fool who would play fast and loose with a hundred thousand pounds, and until today I couldn't have believed there was such an animal. Mr. Hawkehurst did not deign to notice this remark. Do be reasonable, Sheldon, he said. You ask me to do what my sense of right will permit me to do, and you ask me that which I fully believe to be impossible. I cannot for a moment imagine that any persuasion of mine would induce Charlotte to consent to a secret marriage, after your brother's fair and liberal conduct. Of course not, cried George, with savage impatience. That's my brother Phil all over. He is so honorable, so plain and straightforward in all his dealings, that he would get the best of Lucifer himself in a bargain. I tell you, Hawkehurst, you don't know how deep he is, as deep as the bottomless pit by Jove. His very generosity makes me all the more afraid of him. I don't understand his game. If he consented to your marriage in order to get rid of Charlotte, he would let you marry her offhand. But instead of doing that, he makes conditions which must delay your marriage for years. There is the point that bothers me. You had better pursue your own course without any reference to me or my marriage with Miss Halliday, said Valentine. That is exactly what I must do. I can't leave the Haygarth estate to the mercy of Tom, Dick, and Harry, while you try to earn thirty pounds a month by scribbling for the magazines. I must make my bargain with Philip instead of with you, and I can tell you that you'll be the loser by the transaction. I don't quite see that. Perhaps not. You see, you don't quite understand my brother Phil. If this money gets into his hands, be sure some of it will stick to them. Why should the money get into his hand? Because so long as Charlotte Halliday is under his roof, she is, to a certain extent, under his authority. And then I tell you again, there's no calculating the depth of that man. He has thrown dust in your eyes already. He will make that poor girl believe him the most disinterested of mankind. You can warn her. Yes, as I have warned you. To what purpose? You are inclined to believe in Phil rather than to believe in me, and you will be so inclined to the end of the chapter. You remember that man Palmer at Rugley, who used to go to church and take the sacrament? Yes, of course I remember that case. What of him? Why, people believed in him, you know, and thought him a jolly good fellow, 
up to the time when they discovered that he had poisoned a few of his friends in a quite gentlemanly way mr hawkehurst smiled at the irrelevance of this remark he could not perceive the connection of ideas between palmer the rugly poisoner and philip sheldon the stockbroker that was an extreme case he said yes of course that was an extreme case answered george carelessly only it goes far to prove that a man may be gifted with a remarkable genius for throwing dust in the eyes of his fellow-creatures there was no further disputation between the lawyer and valentine george sheldon began to understand that a secret marriage was not to be accomplished in the present position of affairs i am half inclined to suspect that phil knows something about that money he said presently and is playing some artful game of his own in that case your better policy would be to take the initiative answered valentine i have no other course and will charlotte know will she know that i have been concerned in this business asked valentine growing very pale all of a sudden he was thinking how mean he must appear in miss halliday's eyes if she came to understand that he had known her to be john haygarth's heiress at the time he won from her the sweet confession of her love will she ever believe how pure and true my love has been if she comes to know this he asked himself despairingly while george sheldon deliberated in silence for a few moments she need know nothing until the business comes to a head replied george at last you see there may be no resistance on the part of the crown lawyers and in that case miss halliday will get her rights after a moderate amount of delay but if they choose to dispute her claim it will be quite another thing halliday versus the queen and so on with no end of swell qc's against us in the latter case you'll have to put up all your adventures at ullerton and huxter's cross into an affidavit and miss h must know everything yes and then she will think uh no i do not believe she can misunderstand me come what may all doubt and difficulty might be avoided if you would manage a marriage on the quiet off-hand said george i tell you again that i cannot do that and that even if it were possible i would not attempt it so be it you elect to ride the high horse take care that magnificent animal doesn't give you an ugly tumble i can take my chance and i must take my chance against that brother of mine the winning cards are all in my own hand this time and it will be uncommonly hard if he gets the best of me on this the two gentlemen parted valentine went to look at a bachelor's lodging in the neighborhood of edgware road which he had seen advertised in that morning's times and george sheldon started for bayswater where he was always sure of a dinner and a liberal allowance of good wine from the hospitality of his prosperous kinsman chapter seven mr sheldon is prudent valentine found the apartments near the edgware road in every manner eligible the situation was midway between his reading-room in great russell street and the abode of his delight a halfway house on the road between business and pleasure the terms were very moderate the rooms airy and pleasant so he engaged them forthwith his tenancy to commence at the end of the following week and having settled this matter he went back to omega street bent on dissolving partnership with the captain in a civil but decided manner a surprise and a very agreeable one awaited him at chelsea 
he found the sitting-room strewn with Captain Paget's personal property, and the captain on his knees before a portmanteau packing. "'You're just in time to give me a hand, Val,' he said, in his most agreeable manner. "'I begin to find out my age when I put my poor old bones into abnormal attitudes. I dare say packing a trunk or two will only be child's play to you.' "'I'll pack a half a dozen trunks, if you like,' replied Valentine. "'But what is the meaning of this sudden move? I did not know you were going to leave town.' "'Neither did I, when you and I breakfasted together. I got an unexpected offer of a very decent position abroad this morning, a kind of agency, that will be much better than the hand-to-mouth business I've been doing lately.' "'What kind of agency, and where?' "'Well, so far as I can make out at present, it is something in the steam navigation way. My headquarters will be at Ruin.' "'Ruin?' "'Well, it's a pleasant, lively old city enough.' and as medieval as one of Sir Walter's novels, provided they haven't hassamantized it by this time. And I'm very glad to hear you have secured a comfortable berth. And I'm not sorry to leave England, y'all, answered the captain, in rather a mournful tone. Why not? Because I think it's time you and I parted company. Our association begins to be rather disadvantageous to you, Val. "'We've had our ups and downs together, and we've got on very pleasantly, take it for all and all. But now that you're settling down as a literary man, engaged to that young woman, hand in glove with Philip Sheldon and so on, I think it's time for me to take myself off. I'm not wanted, and sooner or later I should begin to feel myself in the way.' The captain grew quite pathetic as he said this, and little pangs of remorse shot through Valentine's heart as he remembered how eager he had been to rid himself of this old man of the mountain. And here was the poor old creature offering to take himself out of the way of his own accord. Influenced by this touch of remorse, Mr. Hawkehurst held out his hand, and grasped that of his comrade and patron. "'I hope you may do well, in some comfortable kind of business,' he said heartily. That adjective, comfortable, was a hasty substitute for the adjective, honest, which had been almost on his lips, as he uttered his friendly wish. He was too well disposed to all the world not to feel profound pity for this white-headed old man, who for so many years had eaten the bread of rogues and scoundrels. "'Come,' he cried cheerily, "'I'll take all the packing off your hands, Captain, and we'll eat our last dinner and drink our last bottle of sparkling together at my expense, at any place you please to name.' "'Say, Blanchard's,' replied horatio paget i like a corner window looking out upon the glare and bustle of regent street it reminds one just a little of the machandorie and the boulevard we'll drink charlotte's health val in bumpers she's a charming young person and i only wish she were an heiress for your sake the eyes of the two men met as the captain said this and there was a twinkle in the cold-gray orbs of that gentleman which had a very unpleasant effect upon valentine what treachery is he engaged in now he asked himself i know that look in my horatio's eyes and i know it always means mischief george sheldon made his appearance at the lawn five minutes after his brother came home from the city he entered the domestic circle in his usual free and easy manner knowing himself to be endured rather than liked by the two ladies, and to be only tolerated as a necessary evil by the master of the house. 
"'I've dropped in to eat a chop with you, Phil,' he said, "'in order to get an hour's comfortable talk after dinner. "'There's no saying half a dozen consecutive words to you in the city, "'where your clerks seem to spend their lives bouncing in upon you when you don't want them.' "'There was very little talk during dinner. "'Charlotte and her stepfather were thoughtful. "'Diana was chiefly employed in listening to the sotto voce inanities of Mrs. Sheldon.' for whom the girl showed herself admirably patient. Her forbearance and gentleness towards Georgie constituted a kind of penitential sacrifice, by which she hoped to atone for the dark thoughts and bitter feelings that possessed her mind during those miserable hours in which she was obliged to witness the happiness of Charlotte and her lover. George Sheldon devoted himself chiefly to his dinner, and a certain dry sherry, which he particularly affected. He was a man who would have dined and enjoyed himself at the table of Judas Iscariot, knowing the banquet to be provided out of the thirty pieces of silver. "'That's as good a pheasant as I ever ate, Phil,' he said, after winding up with the second leg of the bird in question. "'No, Georgie, no macaroni, thanks. I don't care about kicksaws after a good dinner. Has Hawkehurst dined with you lately, by the way, Phil?' Charlotte blushed red as the hollyberries that decorated the chandelier. It was Christmas Eve, and her own fair hands had helped to bedeck the rooms with festal garlands of evergreen and holly. "'He dines with us to-morrow,' replied the stockbroker. "'You'll come, I suppose, as usual, George?' "'Well, I shall be very glad, if I'm not in the way.' Mrs. Sheldon murmured some conventional protestation of the unfailing delight afforded her by George's society. "'Of course, we're always glad to see you,' said Philip, in his most genial manner. "'And now, if you've anything to say to me about business, the sooner you begin, the better. "'You and the girls needn't stay for dessert, Georgie. "'Almonds and raisins can't be much of a novelty to you. "'And as none of you like to take any wine, there's not much to stop for. "'George and I will come in to tea.' The ladies departed, by no means sorry to return to their Berlin wool and piano. Diana took up her work with that saintly patience with which she performed all the duties of her position, and Charlotte seated herself before the piano, and began to play little bits of waltzes, and odds and ends of polkas, in a dreamy mood, and with a slurring over of dominant bass notes, which would have been torture to a musician's ear. She was wondering whether Valentine would call that evening, Christmas Eve, a sort of occasion for congratulation of some kind from her lover, she fancied. It was the first Christmas Eve on which she had been engaged. She looked back to the same period last year, and remembered herself sitting in that very room strumming on that very piano, and unconscious that there was such a creature as Valentine Hawkehurst upon this earth. And, strange to say, even in that benighted state, she had been tolerably happy. "'Now, George,' said Mr. Sheldon, when the brothers had filled their glasses and planted their chairs on the opposite sides of the hearthrug, "'what is the nature of this business you want to talk about?' "'Well, it is a business of considerable importance, in which you are only indirectly concerned. The actual principal in the affair is your stepdaughter, Miss Halliday.' "'Indeed!' "'Yes, uh, you know how you have always ridiculed my fancy "'for hunting up heirs at law and all that kind of thing, "'and you know how I have held on, hoping against hope, "'starting on a new scent when the old scent failed, and so on. 
and you've got a chance at last, eh? I believe that I have, and a tolerably good one, and I think you will own that it is rather extraordinary that my first lucky hit should bring luck your way. That is to say, to my stepdaughter, remarked Mr. Sheldon, without any appearance of astonishment. Precisely, said George, somewhat disconcerted by his brother's coolness. I have lately discovered that Miss Holliday is entitled to a certain sum of money, and I pledge myself to put her in possession of that money on one condition. And that is? That she executes a deed promising to give me half of the amount she may recover by my agency. Suppose she can recover it without your agency? That I defy her to do. She does not even know that she has any claim to the amount in question. Don't be too sure of that. Or even supposing she knows nothing, do you think her friends are as ignorant as she is? Do you think me such a very bad man of business as to remain all this time unaware of the fact that my stepdaughter, Charlotte Holliday, is next of kin to the Reverend John Haygarth, who died intestate at Tilford Haven in Kent about a year ago? This was a cannon shot that almost knocked George Sheldon off his chair. But after that first moment of surprise, he gave a sigh, or almost a groan, expressive of resignation. "'Egad, Philip Sheldon,' he said. "'I ought not be astonished at this, knowing you as well as I do. I must have been confounded fool not to expect some kind of underhand work from you.' "'What do you mean by underhand work?' exclaimed Mr. Sheldon. "'The same newspapers that were open to you were open to me, and I had better opportunities for tracking my stepdaughter's direct descent from John Haygarth's father.' "'How did you discover Miss Halliday's descent from Matthew Haygarth?' asked George, very meekly. He was quite crestfallen. He began to feel that his brother would have the upper hand of him in this business, as in all other businesses in this world. "'That is my secret,' replied Mr. Sheldon, with agreeable tranquillity of manner. "'You have kept your secrets, and I shall keep mine. Your policy has been the policy of distrust. Mine shall be the same.' When you were starting this affair, I offered to go into it with you, to advance whatever money you needed, in a friendly manner. You declined my offer, and chose to go in for the business on your own hook. You have made a very good thing for yourself, no doubt. But you are not quite clever enough to keep me altogether in the dark in a matter which concerns a member of my own family. Yes, said George with a sigh. That's where you hold the winning cards. Miss Halliday is your ace of trumps. "'Depend upon it. I shall know how to hold my strength in reserve, and when to play my leading trump.' "'And how to call her my king,' muttered George between his set teeth. "'Come,' exclaimed Philip presently. "'We may as well discuss this matter in a friendly spirit. What do you mean to propose?' "'I have only one proposition to make,' answered the lawyer with decision. I hold every link of the chain of evidence, without which Miss Halliday might as well be a native of the Fiji Islands, for any claim she can assert to John Haygarth's estate. I am prepared to carry this matter through, but I will only do it on the condition that I receive half the fortune recovered from the crown by Miss Halliday. A very moderate demand, upon my word. I dare say I shall be able to make my bargain with Miss Halliday. "'Very likely,' replied Mr. Sheldon, "'and I shall be able to get that bargain set aside as illegal.' "'I doubt that. I have a deed of agreement drawn up here which would hold water in any court of equity. 
and hereupon Mr. Sheldon the Younger produced and read aloud one of those dry-as-dust documents by which the legal business of life is carried on. It was a deed to be executed by Charlotte Halliday, spinster of Bayswater, on the one part, and George Sheldon, solicitor of Gray's Inn, on the other part. And it gave to the said George Sheldon, as securely as any deed can give anything, one half of any property, not now in her possession or control, which the said Charlotte Halliday might obtain by agency of the above-mentioned George Sheldon. "'And pray, who is to find the costs for this business?' asked the stockbroker. "'I don't feel by any means disposed to stake my money on such a hazardous game. Who knows what other descendants of Matthew Haygarth may be playing at hide-and-seek in the remotest corners of the earth, ready to spring out upon us when we've wasted a small fortune upon law proceedings?' "'I shan't ask you to risk your money,' replied George, with sullen dignity. "'I have friends who will back me when they see that agreement executed.' "'Very well, then. All you have to do is alter your half-share to one-fifth, and I will undertake that Miss Halliday shall sign the agreement before the week is out.' "'One-fifth?' "'Yes, my dear George. Twenty thousand pounds will pay you very handsomely for your trouble.' I cannot consent to Miss Halliday ceding more than a fifth. A fig for your consent. The girl is of age and can act upon her own hook. I shall go to Miss Halliday herself, exclaimed the indignant lawyer. Oh, no, you won't. You must know the danger of running counter to me in this business. That agreement is all very well, but there is no kind of document more easy to upset if one only goes about it in the right way. "'Play your own game, and I will upset that agreement, as surely as I turn this wine-glass bowl downwards.' Mr. Sheldon's actions, and Mr. Sheldon's look, expressed a determination which George knew how to estimate, by the light of past experience. "'It is a hard thing to find you against me, after the manner in which I have toiled and slaved for your stepdaughter's interests. I am bound to hold my stepdaughter's interests paramount over every consideration.' "'Yes, paramount over brotherly feeling and all that sort of thing. "'I say that it is more than hard that you should be against me, "'considering the special circumstances "'and the manner in which I have kept my own counsel.' "'You will take a fifth share or nothing, George,' said Mr. Sheldon, "'with a threatening contraction of his black brows. "'If I have any difficulty in arranging matters with you, "'I will go into this affair myself and carry it through without your help that i defy you to do you had better not defy me pray how much do you expect to get out of miss holliday's fortune demanded the aggravated george that is my business answered philip and now we had better go into the drawing-room for our tea oh by the by george he added carelessly as miss holliday is quite a child in all business matters she had better be treated like a child i shall tell her that she has a claim to a certain sum of money but I shall not tell her what sum. Her disappointment will be less in the event of a failure, if her expectations are not large. "'You are always so considerate, my dear Phil,' said George, with a malignant grin. "'May I ask how it is you have taken it into your head to play the benevolent father in the matter of Valentine Hawkehurst and Miss Halliday?' "'What can it signify to me who my stepdaughter marries?' asked Phil coolly. "'Of course, I wish her well.' but I will not have the responsibility of controlling her choice. If this young man suits her, let her marry him. 
especially when he happens to suit you so remarkably well. I think I can understand your tactics, Phil. You must understand or misunderstand me just as you please. And now come to tea. End of Book the Seventh, Part Five